This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Mabual-Samit from Navigant Research. And unfortunately, Rebecca is not with us today. Uh, she is tending to her her mother, her elderly mother, who's uh, in the hospital. Um, and uh, hopefully she uh, gets better quick. Yeah, so you can email your well wishes to Rebecca at wheelbearings.media. I think that's her email. <laughs> yep, that is. <laughs> we got nice, simple ones now. All right, she's going to be like, what is this, guys? What happened? So, um, But yeah, you know, that is a... Spe- and speaking of emails, we'll, we've got a whole bunch of them that we've gotten in the last couple of weeks uh, since we published our new uh, address, and uh, we'll be talking about some of those later on in the show. Did we get any from a Nigerian prince? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, no oh, no offers to, uh, to transfer uh, vast sums of money uh, into our accounts temporarily uh, for a share of that. But uh, we did get one from Australia that we definitely want to talk about. All right. Well, we'll get to it shortly. Let's start with cars. And uh, what have we been driving? What have you, what have you been in, Sam? Uh, well, since last we spoke, I've been in a couple of different vehicles. I was in the uh, first, the uh, Honda Passport Elite. And um, Rebecca and I both, we, we talked about it earlier this year uh, when uh, we did the, uh, Rebecca and I did the first drive out in Utah. And uh, I had a chance to spend a week with one out here. And, you know, just for those who don't recall the Passport, it is Honda's new sort of upper mid-sized SUV uh, that they launched this year, which is, it's based on the, um, uh, the pilot. So it's got, it's actually the same wheelbase as the pilot, but it's got a shorter nine inch shorter body. So it's been cut down from a three row family truckster down to just a two row that's designed to intended to be more of a lifestyle vehicle, you know, for somebody who doesn't need something quite as massive as the, as the pilot. Um, but you know, wants lots of space for their gear for camping or, uh, you know, even some light off roading, uh, you know, and, and when we drove it in Utah, you know, it did pretty good on, you know, on some trails around Moab. Uh, you know, it's, you know, there's certainly going to be areas where, for example, you would take a, a Jeep Wrangler uh, where you, you're not going to be able to follow with something like this. But for, for most of what I think what most SUV buyers are looking for, it's going to kind of handle everything just fine, especially, you know, things like when you get into, you know, winter conditions, you know, and you get snow and ice and uh, things like that. You know, it'll especially if and you put some snow tires on it, winter tires on it, it'll probably do well. Um, you know, I had a chance to spend a week with it. You know, and get, garner a little more experience with this thing. And, uh, you know, overall, I still, you know, it's it's fine. You know, I generally like it. You know, it's it's a it's a decent looking vehicle. I think, you know, it's a little more um, sporty. Um, I guess not really sporty looking, but, you know, it, it's its proportions are v- definitely very different from the Pilot because, you know, it is so much shorter. Yeah, it's a little um, tidier. It looks better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, whereas the, you know, definitely a lot shorter overhangs than the Pilot. Um, you know, which, you know, it certainly helps, you know, if you are going to do some off-roading, you've got some better approach and departure angles, things like that. Um, you know, interior is not substantially different from a pilot, um, which means that, you know, for example, you get the same infotainment system that you get in other, uh, current, you know, any other Hondas introduced in the last couple of years, uh, for, for better or ill. It does have a volume, volume knob does, on, the, yeah. on there, which is good. Um, you know, the rest of the of infotainment isn't that bad. It's not as bad. Yeah, as no, it it's, has not, been. it's not. It's not. It's not bad at all. You know, it's it's actually a pretty decent system uh, as as touchscreen infotainment systems go, and you got lots of cargo space in the back, including a nice deep well in the back. Uh, you know, there's a a panel that flips up and you know gives you an, an unlined storage well in the back. 
to, you know, if you're going to put wet stuff boots, you know, hiking boots or uh, other gear that you want to keep separated, um, you can put that stuff in the back there and then load in your other things on top of that. Uh, as I said, two row, you know, five seater, quite comfortable. Um, you know, overall, you know, gen- generally a decent ride. Um, you know, it's got plenty of performance with the, the 3.5 liter V6, uh, you know, about 300 horsepower in that thing or 280 horsepower, I should say. Um, one, one thing I did notice uh, when driving this one that I, I hadn't noticed uh, during the earlier drive of the, of the, of the passport um, the adaptive cruise control, this one, you know, uh, like all, all other current Hondas or mainstream Hondas, um, the Passport, you know, comes with the full Honda sensing suite. So you get adaptive cruise control, lane keeping alert, uh, automatic emergency braking and, uh, you know, assorted other features. The adaptive cruise control in this one is not uh, a full stop start system which means that it does cut out at about uh, around 20 miles an hour. So if you're driving it in traffic, you do need to, to pay attention because, you know, if, if you're in, in stop and go traffic, when you get down to 20 miles an hour, the ACC is going to disengage. And at that point, if you don't have your foot on the brakes, um, you know, you're going to keep coasting. So you do need to, to pay attention to that. But other than that, the rest of it is fine. Uh, you know, collision mitigation, braking, uh, which is nice, you know, when it detects an impending collision, you know, it'll, it'll automatically apply some braking for you. Um, the, the lane departure lane keeping assist system that, uh, the Honda has is okay. It's not the, it's certainly not as, um, aggressive as some systems. It do, it's not going to try to center you in the lane. Um, you know, and you know, it will, you know, as you drift out of the lane, it'll try to put some steering input in to kind of nudge you back. But if you, if you don't respond, uh, you know, and it's a tight, and it's a tighter curve, it, the car, the vehicle will continue drifting out of the lane. So you do have to watch for that. So, you know, keep in mind, this is, this is not a, you know, a, a you know, an, an autopilot type of system. It's, it's definitely, you know, a step down from that or a couple of steps down. But, you know, overall, you know, I think it's it's generally a, a you know, a, a good vehicle overall. It gets decent, you know, reasonably decent fuel economy, about 21 miles per gallon combined. And I, I think I got about 20 overall during my week with it. Um, you know, and the the base price for the um, Elite trim, which is the the top-level trim, is uh, – Forty three six eighty, you know, all in with the destination handling came to forty four seven twenty five, so you know it's it's in the ballpark of where other vehicles in this segment are. It's perhaps not the most um, most up to date in terms of some of the tech, most most sophisticated in terms of some of the tech, um, but you know it it's it it hits most of the the check marks that you want to hit. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually had the chance to drive it a few weeks ago as well. Um, and I, th- I forget what I stepped out of. Uh, and it might have been a Mitsubishi, um, like an Outlander PHEV or the um, the, the uh, Eclipse Cross. I forget. But I just remember getting in the Honda and everything felt like it should operate together. It felt like they, they actually drove it and <laughs> made all yeah. the systems work together. So it was actually really good to drive um, from a driver's perspective. You know, the controls work quite harmoniously together um and it it is like it's like a right size pilot you know if the pilot feels 
alternately sort of too big and too small at this, you know, depending on the situation, you know, it's not quite yeah, for, one of for those. A three, it's for a three row. It's on the smaller size you right. know, of a lot of three rows, you know, compared to, you know, say the uh, Hyundai Palisade or the uh, Kia Telluride, you know, it feels a little smaller than those, but at the same time, you know, it's, if, if you don't actually need a three row, then it's, you know, it's a little, a little bit too much, you know, and the, the passport is, you know, almost just, just the right size. Yeah, yeah, I like the Passport a lot, and price-wise, I think it's pretty competitive within the range. I'm a little confused at how Honda still keeps trying to sell it as an SUV, which I, I think is just the way they they want to position it and the way they imagine both the Pilot and the Passport is that, you know, these are our SUVs because we don't make, you know, traditional body-on-frame trucks, and uh, that that's fine. I, I think and, they, you, know, they, to, to, you know, to be honest, you know, even, you know, the, the most SUV-ish of SUVs these days, you know, like Jeeps are unibody designs anyway. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the big selling points for me in the Grand Cherokee was that it's not a full frame vehicle because I, I don't need to be hauling that kind of weight around. And the, the our Jeep has not really ever done anything off road other than, you know, turn around in the backyard. Um, and so that's like except what people use them for. But I, I think that they're, they're still um, sort of selling the, the sort of like, if you needed to, you could kind of aspect of it, which is, which is fine. And it's a, it's a good vehicle. People are going to like it. I was a little dismayed by the, the interior quality for the price. It just, it's a nice interior. It's a Honda interior. It's just nice, but it also still feels kind of austere. And that's, I think just sort of a personal preference kind of thing. Maybe some color yeah, would help. You know, it. I think, you know, again, if, if you compare it against that Palisade, you know, then it, it certainly uh, is perhaps a little more austere feeling. It doesn't have quite the, the premium feel of a Palisade, um, but you know, it's, it's still perfectly adequate, you know, and oh yeah, for sure. know, especially, you know, especially if you go for one of the, the lower trim levels, like the, uh, the sport or the EXL, you know, sport starts at 32, 33 delivered, um, you know, EXLs, you know, 37. So, you know, it's, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely, you know, reasonably affordable for this, this, uh, class of vehicle. Yeah, I'll agree there. And I think given the, given the choices, uh, the Honda is going to feel you know, really light on its feet. It's got a lot of thoughtful features that are pretty well thought out. Uh, and it has this sort of the, the Honda reputation for, for holding up or, um, you know, there's the alternate Honda reputation where you get grumpy people who will tell you, ah, they're not all that cracked up to be. So it has that Honda reputation <laughs> too, but, uh, it's generally they, they come out, uh, pretty well on, you know, quality and, and, um, durability and, and satisfaction. So, yeah, you and, know, you know, the, the all wheel drive system is based on, it, it's a variation of, uh, the super handling all wheel drive that, um, they have on the, um, on the Acuras. So it's the same basic technology in there. Uh, you know, so it has torque vectoring, uh, side to side torque vectoring as oh, well as front it? to rear. Yeah, ah. um, which you know you don't get on the pilot. Um, so that you know that does give it some extra uh, extra capability when you're in low traction conditions. I wonder if that's the uh, the basically the powertrain that Acura just put in that SLX that they did up for um, for Radwood. <laughs> I think it probably is. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> the same thing. That's super cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I mean, there's not a whole lot more to say about that, right? Unless we're gonna. Yeah. No. I mean, if you're if you're in the market for for a midsize utility, you know, midsize two row utility, you know, this is definitely one that you should be taking a look at. 
um, you know, depending on what you're, what you're looking for, it may or may not be your best choice, but, um, you know, it's, it's definitely one that should be on your list. Well, let's ping pong a little bit because we're still on um, – uh, so we can stay on crossovers and we can talk about three roads and then we'll come back to – we can finish up with the sedans that we both had as well. But um, I was able to drive the 2020 Dodge Durango SRT, which is uh, like three rows, no waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it, like, it snowed while we had it. And first of all, it's hard not to like the Durango, right? It's, it's comfortable. It's an extra long Grand Cherokee. So it's, it's actually based on the old commander. If you look on the, uh, the underside of the second row seats, when you flip them up, the decal still has, uh, a line drawing of a commander. Oh, does it really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. It makes me laugh. Um, but it's, it's not the, the most accessible third row. It's not the biggest third row, but it, overall, like it's an, it's a sort of occasional use third row. So it's, it's fine. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the pilot in that respect, you know, it's yeah. kind of, you know, more of a, an, an upper midsize than, you know, than really a full size utility. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And, but where it differs from the pilot is it has the big Hemi, the 6.4 liter, oh, yes. the 392, um, which is like 435 horsepower or something. And then it sounds fantastic. <laughs> and, and it's just like, it's one of those cars that you just rev in the driver and you're like, that sounds pretty damn good. <laughs> I could do this for a That's, while. That, that, that is, you know, that is and, and will be, you know, probably the big, single biggest thing I'll miss, you know, someday when we transition all over to electrics you know, is that sound of engines like that, you know, big, especially big V8s. There's, there's just something you can't, and it's not just the sound, it, you know, you, you also feel the the vibration of it, you know, so it's, you know, it is a really a visceral thing. I think you can probably replicate some of that with like a tank of compressed air and, and, <laughs> you know, an actual, like, but, you know, think some of really it like big a, haptic actuators in the chassis, you know, so. Well, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you, you use little valves, right? Cause that's all it is. Yeah. It's, it's a eight poppet valves opening into a, um, a length of pipe. So it's like a pipe organ. That's all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's extra hard. Yeah, you, you, just you, need, you need some weights, you know, cranking it, rotating around too, though. You that's know, true. It's, it's yeah. more, I mean, you know, the sound, yeah, it's the, the valves, but you, you also need that, you know, that, that little rumble of a V8. That's true. That's oh, on the, I walk around because I'm a, like, a, you know, attuned to sound. You know, I noticed you walk around the side of you. It, it, as you get sort of towards the front of it, you can hear that the valve train, the push rods and the rockers mm-hmm. and stuff all actuating that you don't you don't necessarily get on an overhead cam engine because they've got it. Uh, it's, it's all quieted down with, um, you know, sound absorbing or sound blocking uh, valve covers where they, they've done as well as they could with the Hemi, too. It's pretty quiet, but you can still if you listen for it, you can hear the push rod actuation um and it's it's, how how are you going to complain with it a a family suv that has a big v8 it's lowered it's got a a pretty disciplined chassis it's got the very comfortable srt seats um and in the second row is is uh captain's chairs individual captain's chairs uh it's, it's a it's a great family car it's complete overkill it's it's basically like if you wanted a challenger but you needed more, this is your your option. Um, and it, there, it's, there is one more thing they could do to this though. They could drop a Hellcat in it. They and could. I'm, I'm frankly surprised that they haven't yet. Well, because the people who are buying the Hellcat are going to buy the Jeep and they're going to pay more for it. That's so, true. Yeah. You know, you, you can get a Trackhawk. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't get a three-row Trackhawk. Correct. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know how much of a market there might be for that, but if there's anybody who's good at sort of exploring those niches, it's, it's a wide-body FCA. Hellcat uh, Durango. Come on, I take that would it. Be awesome. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. It would, uh, it would get about 10 miles to the gallon. This one got about 14. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't drive it hard. It's just, uh, you know, and, and it's funny when you actually get into the big Hemi, there's a lot of power there, but there's also a lot of weight. And oh yeah, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel maybe as muscular as it sounds like it should be. It's definitely powerful, but it, it, it could use more. <laughs> uh, and I was amused actually too, in the, in the infotainment system in the, the Uconnect, they have like all the performance screens cause it's, it's the SRT. So it has the SRT screens where it has like a real time dyno and, uh, you know, gauges and stuff. So you can, you can actually just, I drove around for a little while just playing with that stuff. My 11 year old was fascinated We're, you know, <laughs> you take off fast from a stoplight and you watch the dyno trace go up and <laughs> it's, it's rather amusing. It's all, um, it's all rather silly, but, uh, you know, oh, it's yeah. fun. Yeah, and it's it's a fun car, and it was about I think it was like seventy seven thousand dollars. So you you pay for it. Um, you can get a Durango much much cheaper in the, in the mid thirties if you need a nice one, uh, and uh, it'll do pretty much all the things that this one did outside of the performance trappings, which you really. Again, like, you know what you're buying when you buy this, but if you just need a three-row car, just don't get the SRT. Just get a three-row. <laughs> um, and the suspension is a little bit – it's a little bit stiff. Uh, it was sort of my my only real gripe. And um, we had it actually over Thanksgiving. So the day after Thanksgiving, we usually go get the Christmas tree, and I really wanted to take it, but it doesn't have roof rails. And oh. I didn't want, to, didn't want to put the tree on the top without roof rail. So I threw the rack on the Jeep and we took the Jeep. It was an interesting contrast because there's the same basic vehicle. Uh, and and the, the our Grand Cherokee feels a lot squishier compared to the Durango SRT. <laughs> um, and it, but it's, it feels lighter on its feet, too. That big Hemi has a lot of has a lot of weight. Um, it, you know, it it is. It's it's the it's the Challenger SUV or Challenger yeah, crossover. Pretty much. Know. Yeah. 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 And and. You know, it does. The SRT does start at uh, you know fifty eight and a half. So you know, you don't have to spend you know seventy thousand plus on one of these things. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's I mean, clearly clearly a lot of options in the one you had. Yes. Oh, it was very. It had the 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 screens. It had the HDMI connectors, which they have copied. Um, uh, Hyundai Kia, Kia and Hyundai with the they put them in the edge of the seats, the edge of the front seats. Oh, okay. That's so cool. That's that's a that's a good there. approach. Yeah. Um. You know, all it's a very thoughtful family SUV. In that sense, uh, you know, it, it has plenty of cargo space. Um, it diminished a bit when you f- uh, fold up the third row, but uh, you can still get some stuff in there. You know, we, we managed to get all of Thanksgiving dinner in there because we, we traveled, we cooked, and then we, we went across town. So um, well, we had all that stuff, the dog, the kids. It, it's, you know, it's a good sort of three row that you, you don't need to use the third row all the time. It had a tow hitch on it, and with that large engine it can tow with authority i'm sure uh so it has a lot of just practical charms and i I love the durango overall it's just a really nice execution it's been around for a while you know what you're going to get fca is going to keep milking it until they absolutely can't and i don't see anything wrong with that (laughs) (laughs) so let's move on to sedans Uh, you uh something perhaps a slightly more sensible than uh than a big v8 suv uh, Extremely sensible. You were in the uh, the 2020 uh, Toyota Avalon Hybrid. Uh, indeed. So and all the fuel th- I used, you didn't. <laughs> I, that's right. I was I was saving it for you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the Avalon is a is a big sedan. You know, uh, and, and it always has been. You know, fairly large and roomy. You know, it's 
it's basically you know a Camry Plus or a Camry Max, you know, depending on, on you know which uh, which uh, smartphone company's uh, terminology you want to use. Uh, but you know it, and in its current iteration, it's actually a pretty decent looking vehicle too. It's you know it, it's a, aside you know depending on how you feel about you know really massive grills, you know um, the the Camry or the uh, sorry the uh, Avalon does have uh you know a maximum grill uh aperture in the front uh most of it is blanked off so that there's actually no airflow through it but you know they really want you to know you know when you walk up to this thing that yes you are driving a toyota avalon um you it know, doesn't, and, uh, it's not that offensive though right no like, it's it's not offensive but it is huge it you know it, what it looks like to me it looks like one of those like gillette razors with like nine blades <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, the, aside from that, you know, the rest of it, you know, I think is, is an attractive design, you know, that as with most modern sedans, you know, they've gone to more of the fastback look on it, which is, which is fine. You know, I think it's, it's got decent proportions to it and, you know, it's really roomy inside, you know, both in the front and the back, um, it, you know, it has the, um, Toyota's 2.5 liter, uh, four cylinder Atkinson four cylinder engine, uh, with their, their hybrid powertrain. So basically the same thing you get in um in the uh Camry hybrid uh or in the the new 2020 uh Highlander hybrid that's that's coming shortly um and you know it's it's got you know more than more than adequate performance uh let me find it here more um, than adequate that's a yeah i'm not sure if that's what they were going for you know it's it's no <laughs> it's no SRT uh, yeah. but you know, it, it's about 200 horsepower, which is fine, you know, for, for something, you know, that you're going to drive around that you're going to use as a daily commuter. Uh, you know, it, it does fine, you know, it, and you know, you can pop it into smart sport mode, uh, or put it in eco mode and, you know, maximize your electric driving with it. And, you know, this thing's rated 43 miles per gallon, you know, city highway and combined, you know, which for a big sedan like this is really impressive. I got about 40, uh, overall during my week with it. Uh, but it was fairly cold and, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, you know, try to, um, you know, be as efficient as I could. I just tried, you know, drove it normally and, you know, got 40 miles per gallon with it, which for, you know, to, to get that kind of mileage with a big sedan like this, you know, that's, that's better than we typically got with our diesel Jetta when we had that. And, you know, this thing's got a lot of room inside. Right. It's uh, bigger. You don't have any of the nonsense that you've got with the modern diesel where you've got the, the SCR fluid and all that. And right. um, it's you're running regular, regular fuel in it, too, not mid-grade or premium. So yeah. And, you know, when you're cruising through your neighborhood, you know, at, at 25, 20, 25 miles an hour, it's, you know, typically running just on electricity alone. You know, so it's you know rolling along silently, so you can sneak up on people, which is which is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what exactly are you up to? <laughs> I don't know, uh, but you know when I mean when you're pulling into the neighborhood, you know it's, it's you know it, you don't necessarily want to uh, be rattling everybody's windows. Um, so you know it depends on your mood, I guess. But uh, it, it's it's good in that respect. The seats are comfortable. The the interior is is really nice. Um, you know, it's got some nice uh, stitching on the leather. You know, nice nice leather, some real wood trim. Um, the biggest gripe I have with this one, as with other modern Toyotas, is probably the infotainment system, which is better than it used to be, but it's still not as good as it could be. Well, so this uh, is and and it's, it's, did you have the limited? Uh, yes. Yeah. So that, so. that's the, the nicest execution, but the, yeah, their infotainment 
it's like it's like a tombstone in the middle of the <laughs> um, maybe maybe tombstone's not the best way to describe it but it it does it's just on this this panel that just like sticks up uh it's an interesting take on that the way everybody tacks on the screens you know this is sort of integrated with all the center stack controls um, yeah in, in this case you know the center stack kind of sweeps up from the console sweeps all the way up you know and it's it's integrated you know in this sort of wave that comes up you know that kind of stands out in front of the dash um yeah you know, and like other uh like other you know modern vehicles uh you know the the they have moved the the uh, center touchscreen up higher uh so again it's closer to your line of sight but it's still a touchscreen which as uh regular listeners know i am fundamentally opposed to in cars um and i think should be banned but and and we'll talk about more more about that next week uh when rebecca's back when we have a chance to uh talk about the the Mazda CX30 um but you know the 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 screen is better than most the, the screen itself the display is better than what i've seen on many recent toyotas it doesn't have quite as much trouble with polarized sunglasses things like that this one does have a did have a heads up display uh which also worked worked well um but just the the interface um you know was kind of iffy um you know it wasn't always as responsive as as i'd like it to be uh and it doesn't have. It does have support for CarPlay, Apple CarPlay. Does not have support for Android Auto yet. At some point, they will be adding that in, and, and it's supposed to be. I believe it's the, the Avalon is one of the cars that's supposed to be uh, eligible for uh, a retrofit to add Android Auto support to it at some point in the, the not too distant future. I mean, that's so, just software, right? It's just, just, uh, just no. Actually, there's a hardware module that has to go in there as well. Really? Wow, uh, that's for, interesting. For authentication. So that that is one of the uh, one of the issues, and actually, speaking as, as long as we're speaking about CarPlay, um, uh, you know, I have talked to a few other manufacturers, and you know, there is hardware that's associated with both the, both of the projection systems with CarPlay and Android Auto uh, for you know for communications and the authentication. Um, but as far as I can tell from speaking to other manufacturers. Um, Apple and Google do not charge, you know, any sort of ongoing licensing fee for using that software. Uh, and uh, this week, BMW finally backed off on their previous announcement to uh, that they were going to charge a subscription fee on their cars for Apple CarPlay. Uh, they were, you know, they, they had been charging a $300 premium, uh, one-time premium for CarPlay, um, or you could, uh, pay for an $80 a year subscription to use CarPlay, which in both, you know, for every other manufacturer, they just roll that, the, the price into the, uh, into the sticker price of the car or the upgraded infotainment system that supports it. Uh, but nobody else in the industry was char trying to charge a subscription fee for CarPlay, which not you know, even just, Porsche, not even Porsche. <laughs> right. You know, so that, you know, that was just ridiculous. And they finally backed off on that. So now, you know, you won't, they, they're not doing this. You still have to pay 300 bucks up front, but the subscription is gone. Um, and uh, uh, Toyota is not charging any kind of extra fee except for whatever you're paying for the, the, any of the upgraded infotainment systems. I don't think the base infotainment system supports uh, CarPlay, but all the other ones have it included. Um, you know, and in this case you get, uh, it's a 14 speaker or, uh, 14 or yeah, 14 speaker JBL system with a subwoofer and amp. And it sounds pretty good. 
Um, you know, you've got four USB ports in here, um, you know, and, you know, lot, lots of other goodies. There's a Qi uh, wireless charger, so you can just drop your phone on that. Uh, so do those – I phone. have a question about those. Um, you know, I try them, and they seem to, like, work for a few minutes, and then they stop working. And I don't know whether it's because my phone is in a case or, or whatever, but, like, I can never make them work reliably, no matter what car and across multiple phones. That uh, – is your case pretty thick? Uh, right now it's, it's not in the past it had been. And I was like, okay, it's, it's just the case right now. Some, I have sometimes the case can interfere case. with it. If it's, if it's a really thick case, uh, usually the thinner cases work fine. Um, it might just be your phone too. Cause I've, I've not had any problems with it. Well, I mean, we now have an iPhone that, yeah. uh, I begrudgingly moved <laughs> to, uh, so it's been and it's been interesting actually using um, Apple CarPlay. Uh, I didn't realize there's there's a, a little you know hardware for authentication that they need for it. I thought it was just software. That must be like just sort of like a a little IC chip or something that allows. Yeah, it to, I mean it's, it's not it's not expensive hardware. I mean it's only a few bucks uh, yeah. to add that hardware into this into the system, but th- there is some hardware that's involved. And uh, the thing with with CarPlay is. It's it's one of those things like, you know, that auto writers will gripe about like settings or, you know, learning the screen layout it is because once you get it set up in a single car that you're going to have for a period of, of years, it's fine. But because we're jumping from car to car to car, every single time you pair it with a new car, um, if you have your icons and stuff laid out in a different way, you have to go and redo that within yep. CarPlay. Um, versus having it like store those settings and show up across multiple vehicles. So that's kind of a – it's not even a gripe. It's just one of the things that I'm, I'm realizing is is the way it works. That's all. Yeah. And, you know, I mean when, when we're reviewing stuff, you know, we need to take some care in how we talk about that, you know, because the average person that's going to go out and buy or lease one of these things and live with it for, you know, multiple years, you know, after, you know, a week or two, they're probably going to get accustomed to – you know, how a particular system works. And, you know, we have, you know, that classic first world problem of, you know, of, you know, dealing with different cars every week. And, you know, so you have to have that, you know, make that mental shift uh, every time you jump into a different car. And, you know, so it's, it's generally not as much of a problem for most consumers, you know, but we have to think of it. What we need to look for is the, the kinds of things that, you're not necessarily going to get used to, or that, you know, that are, that are going, there are things that are going to irritate you for the long haul and things like a slow interface or, you know, even just, you know, kind of a, um, you know, kind of a, a non-intuitive interface, even, even though you get accustomed to it, it's, it's still not necessarily a good thing. You know, I mean, a user interface, you know, for some, especially something that's designed to be used while you're driving should be simple and clean, um, you know, and there are some aspects of the Toyota interface that are fine, you know, because, you know, on the main home screen, you know, you can put some shortcuts on there to the, the people that you call most often, for example. Um, but, you know, you do have to go, you know, dig down sometimes, you know, a couple of layers through menus or, t- you know, take multiple taps to get to a particular piece of information that you want on the screen. And that, you know, that, that's, non non optimal when you're driving especially with a touchscreen you know where you know you're reaching out and 
at, you know, as you're driving, you know, the, the end of your arm where your finger is, you know, is going to be tending to move around a little bit. And, you know, you want to hit, you want to have nice, nice, large touch targets to hit. And, you know, this is one of the things that we'll talk about with, with Mazda that they emphasized a lot is that, that whole, their whole strategy around their infotainment system. But we'll talk about that next time. All right. Um, so the, you know that yeah, I didn't mean to get us off track on the Avalon, but they, it's a the, the limited. It's a nice interior. It's a you know they're getting better. Toyota's getting better with their infotainment. It's interesting how uh, Toyota and and Honda both kind of they're leaders in the the market. You know, and no matter what class they're in, they're generally like they're the safe choices, right? They've really they've become established as yeah. You're generally the, not going to go wrong with buying either a Toyota or a Honda. Right, but their infotainment. Both of those companies have had infotainment that has lagged everybody else, uh, or, or, or significantly lagged what what we've known to be, or what we've sort of crowned in our infinite wisdom as automotive journalists as the class of the field. <laughs> but you know, but like I mean, you get into a Hyundai or a Kia, the infotainment's a lot better. It's a lot more intuitive. It's a lot easier to use. Uh, you know, UConnect has gotten praise over and over again, although it's starting to get a little crappier. I, I was less impressed with Uconnect in the, the Durango than in past iterations because it, it, it is like a lot of screen, uh, the stuff is being driven by the screen that, that shouldn't be and its menus are a little buried now. Uh, but, you know, there's other stuff out there that's better uh, and they're still playing catch up on that, that side of things. Right. And that's, you know, when we get a chance to... Um spent you know try out the uh, the Ford Sync 4 system that's launching next year um you know it'll be interesting to see you know how that works in practice i've i've played with it a little bit you know in demos um you know and particularly the the large screen version you know what they've done with that is really try to get the things that you're using all the time at the top level so that you don't have to go down through menus it's all right there and you know have nice big cards and and touch targets um you know, and at least, you know, playing with it on a kiosk, you know, or, you know, even in a, in a prototype, you know, it seems to work, it seems to work better. Uh, but we'll see, you know, how that works out, you know, how that plays out on the, the 10 inch and eight inch screens, you know, that will be, you know, the, the volume players for that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's we'll wrap up the car segment here. Um, speaking of Hyundai and Kia, um, I had a Genesis. <laughs> Which is neither Hyundai or Kia. It is a Genesis. Uh, Genesis and G70. And don't you forget it. They're correct. Uh, three point, this is the 3.3T uh, with the all-wheel drive. So this is a fantastic car. And it reminds me of the best 3 Series from like the E46, E90 generation. It just it has a great chassis. It's got lots of power. It's really well behaved. It handles great. Uh, rides nicely. The it could use a little bit more steering feel. The steering's still a bit numb. Um, the ergonomics are are really really good. They did such a great job on this car, and it's a shame because nobody's gonna buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a small sedan it's tight like those older three series were it's the back seat is, is is sort of it reminds me um of that class of car it reminds me of the s60s that we had where you know the front seat's fine but you try to get like people in the back and you're like oh it's actually a little tinier than it would seem so it's a great driver's car it's a great sort of one plus if if it's you and somebody else with an occasional use back seat uh you know it's like the old lexus is series as well or even maybe even the current one is still a little tight i forget it's been a while since i've been in one of those but it's really that sort of entry near luxury performance 
class of sedan. Uh, and I, I like it a lot better than the last three series I drove, which to me has that st- started to get kind of big. And the, the latest three series rotates funny. It d- doesn't behave uh, the way I prefer them to behave, I guess, or the way <laughs> I remember them behaving. Um, this this car and, and I know why it behaves this way is because uh, Genesis has a lot of former German performance premium car people working for them. And I think it was uh, the, the chassis was, was it Albert Bierman. Al, Al- Albert, yeah. Albert Bierman yeah. is in, is in charge of R and D and uh, vehicle development at Hyundai motor group now. So he oversees all the vehicle development for, for the three brands um, for, for Hyundai Kia and Genesis now. Yeah. And he came and, from BMW M right. Yep. Yeah, uh, so that's it's pretty good pedigree. <laughs> it's, it's, have you driven the G seventy? I'm really, I have, really. I impressed. have driven. The, I've driven the uh, the two liter turbo. I haven't driven the V six, the, the turbo V six yet. I've heard that the, the turbo V six is the one to get. I haven't driven the four cylinder, and I'd really like to because that's the one you can get with a manual. Um, yeah, and and that one's really nicely balanced. You know, the, the lighter the lighter weight of the four cylinder, you know, gives it even even better balance than the uh, than the V six. Yeah, I I think that's sort of the one I guess criticism is there's a lot of power and a lot of potential here. Um it I and it's been snowy so I haven't really had a chance to try to uh ring it out on a on a curvy back road or anything. Um what I have been able to do within reason because I don't want to hit black ice and wind up in trees. Uh it it handles really well and and it's a car you can hustle and it will enjoy being hustled. Uh so as a driver's car I think it really it does hit the mark. Um, but the, the, the V6 is almost like you might not need that much power, which I hate saying, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, especially, you know, if it's a car that you're driving out on the road, as opposed to taking to, to the track, you know, you can, you can have so much fun with something that's got a little bit less power. You know, it's, it's, it can still be a blast to drive. And you can do it at speeds, you know, that aren't necessarily going to, as I've said before, aren't necessarily going to get you in trouble. Um, you know, so you can still hustle it along. And, you know, when you look at, you know, things like modern turbocharged four-cylinder engines, you know, they are really amazing compared to what you got in a V6 or a V8 15 or 20 years ago. That's true. And the, the torque curve from those those little fours with the, the lots of turbo on them is – really impressive it's it's you know it's shaped like a table yep. <laughs> it just it goes up and stays up um yeah it, it feels really planted too you know trying things like uh you know on ramps and, and just seeing how you can stomp on the brake and get that little bit of rotation out of it and stuff not it's it's not a car that's going to get loose on you so the the just sort of the basis of the chassis is there I, you know you shut off all the the stability and traction control it still behaves it's not something that's using electronics to manage a fundamentally evil chassis so it's just it's a really really good compact sports sedan in the the idiom of the three series that sort of set the mold uh and you know other than the the steering needing a little bit more weight um or or feedback really the weight is fine um it's just it's it's a little tight it's not a big car and they offer other models if you want more space yeah i mean you know if you need a little more space you know on the same platform you can get the kia stinger you know, which is the same platform, but with a little more wheelbase. And, you know, so you get a little more room. And that one, you know, because the Stinger is a hatchback, you know, you also have that extra 
practicality there. You know, if you need to carry large stuff, you, know, you can drop the back seat down and, and, you know, stick stuff in through that hatch. And, you know, it, it's a little more useful sometimes. Yeah, the Stinger doesn't feel quite as premium because it's a Kia versus the Genesis, and and that's what Genesis is really going for is that that sort of premium outfitting. And uh, you know, this, this has the nice quilted uh, leather seats, and the, the the trim is nice. All the materials are really good. The plastic uh, trim on everything you touch, almost I think it's flocked in some way. It has a coating on it that's uh, it's like a non-slip coating. It just it feels mm-hmm. nice, uh, and and they so they they're really paying attention to all aspects of what makes cars feel premium and and sets that impression how how well it's going to hold up is is another story and i know that's always the crappy criticism that people sort of uh giveth and taketh away with, with genesis it's like well it's a hyundai we'll see how long they last hyundai's tend to be around for for quite yeah, a while they, hyundai's have good reliability and durability scores so i, I wouldn't yeah. be too concerned about that I say that in particular, though, just noting that from what I've heard of the long-term tests of the Stinger, uh, people, you know, magazines and stuff have noted that the, this, the those particular cars that they've tested feel, feel like they loosen up, they develop some rattles and stuff over oh. time. Now, I again, take it for what it's worth. Those are, you know, a small sampling of very picky people who are probably pushing those cars uh, a lot more. A lot harder. Spending, spending a lot more time at the track than than your yeah. average consumer. Um, but I think overall, the, the hardware, the, the powertrain is going to hold up. And, you know, uh, either or. This I really liked the Stinger when I drove that a while back, too. So, And, I, and a, I'd highly recommend that you go buy a G70 now before they maximize the grill on this thing, too, like they did with the <laughs> G90. Uh, they're all good looking, though. I mean, I, I really I really like what, what Hyundai Kia... And Genesis, what they're doing styling-wise, they're just they're they're a force to be reckoned with. I, I think they're they're really making smart choices and they're being aggressive and, and they're they're a company to watch. And I, I I don't know how well they're being established, but as somebody who just watches the the industry, they're doing a lot of stuff, and they've been doing a lot of really good stuff for the last five ten years. Yeah, no, absolutely, the whole Hyundai Motor Group and. You know, um, Genesis is finally going to get its first SUV uh, in the near future. The, the GV80 is coming soon. I'm not sure when they'll when they'll actually launch it, but within the next few months, uh, it'll be making its debut, perhaps at the New York Auto Show uh, in the spring. But uh, it's 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 not far off. And I've seen them running around here. I, I live just a few miles away from the uh, the Hyundai Tech Center um, here outside of Ann Arbor. And so I've I've seen some of the camo GV80s running around, um, and it will you know if if what you, you know if what you're looking for is you know the same kind of style you know in you know something like a utility, God knows why, but you know if that's what you must have, <laughs> um, you know they'll they'll have that option too, and I think that's perhaps where the Genesis brand may really start to take off. You know if they can translate you know these kinds of driving behaviors. You know, and you know the premium feel, you know, into utility vehicles, and I think you know the market may start to take notice. And maybe at that point, you know, once once the you know, the Genesis brand starts to get a little more um, attention for that, then maybe customers will say, "Oh, wait a minute, these guys make cars too, and some, some pretty damn interesting cars." You know, like the, especially the G70 and G80. You know, then hopefully, you know that will provide a bit of a halo effect to those models as well. 
which is so backwards from what it used to be. But I mean, okay. I, know. I mean, it, yeah, you can easily imagine a garage that right now might be filled with a five series and an X five uh, being filled with a, a G80 and a, a GV80 or a G70 and a GV80. You know, like there's there's those same choices there. They're they're going to have to focus, I think, on the the premium design and premium outfitting uh, versus necessarily sort of the performance when they move up to sport utilities. But they're they're smart, and I think they'll they'll do well. I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm confident in them. I, it's it's always good to have more more interesting choices and more product and and across the lineup they're they're interesting stuff so let's uh let's hit All some right. stories general motors and lg chem have announced a joint venture they're going to put the lordstown plant to use right that's uh not exactly some, okay so so this this is um you know a report that actually first cropped up um back in september um at the beginning of the uh the gm uaw strike um, you know, and there were reports that part of the deal that GM had offered uh, to the union was to convert the Lordstown assembly plant into a battery plant. Um, and the the deal that was offered was that, you know, rather rather than being a full up GM plant, it would actually be a joint venture uh, with at that time uh, an unannounced uh, battery supplier, uh, you know, to build batteries, lithium ion batteries. Uh, or rather lithium-ion cells uh, for GM's upcoming fleet of electric vehicles. And, you know, the the union rejected that offer um, because, first of all, um, you know, GM was insisting on, you know, a lower wage tier for the people working at that plant. So it would have been about half the wages, half half the hourly uh, rate that um, the people building the crews were getting. And, uh it would also be a lot fewer people, you know, part of the problem with building batteries, especially cells is that it's a very highly automated process. So there, you know, they had, you know, at one point, I think about uh, over 5,000 people working at the Lordstown assembly plant, building crews on a couple of different shifts. And, you know, with, for the battery plant, you know, you're, they're looking to eventually get up to 1100 jobs, um, which is, you know, obviously better than no jobs. But you know it's it's a lot less, and you know so that was part of what what led led into the strike. Um, ultimately, you know, following the or you know after the strike was settled, GM decided to sell off the Lordstown plant to uh, Lordstown Motors, which is a startup founded by one of the the founders of Workhorse Group, an electric truck manufacturer, um, and essentially you know gave them the plant for nothing. Uh, because the Tesla you know, model, <laughs> yeah, it's basically the Tesla model. And actually, you know, the same thing goes for Rivian. You know, Rivian got the old Mitsubishi plant in normal Illinois for effectively nothing. Um, and you know, what, uh, you know, what Lord, what Lordstown Motors is going to have to do now is raise, you know, several hundred million dollars to convert that plant from building, you know, front wheel drive cruises to electric pickup trucks and vans. Um, so that's, you know, their chances of success, uh, in, in actually getting that operation up and running, I think are pretty limited, but that aside, um, you know, this new deal is actually for a new greenfield site in Lordstown, not far from where the Lordstown assembly plant is. It's in the same area, but this is a new, a brand new facility, uh, that they're doing a joint venture, 50, 50 joint venture with LG chem, 
Uh, and LG Chem is one of the, the biggest battery suppliers in the world, along with Panasonic, CATL out of China, um, uh, Samsung, SDI, and, and SK Innovation. And LG supplies the batteries used or the cells used by most of GM's electrified vehicles. Uh, they, they supplied the, the, the batteries for the Volt. Uh, now for the Bolt EV, um, they, you know, some of the, the hybrids, the plug-in hybrids that uh, GM was doing all had LG cells. Ford's using LG for the, the Mustang Mach-E. Um, Audi and Jaguar are using LG for their batteries. Uh, so, you know, this, this is a major supplier of batteries. It's a $2.3 billion investment split 50-50 between the two companies. And this plant will ha- um, build uh, only cells, no, no battery packs, just the cells. And uh, when it's complete uh, sometime around 2023, um, when it's fully ramped up, it'll have about 30 gigawatt hours of capacity, which if you, if you assume an average of 90 kilowatt hours per vehicle, that works out to about 300, enough for about 330,000 vehicles a year. And the, um, you know, one of the first new EVs that uh, GM's launching is their electric pickup truck, which may or may not be called a Hummer uh, or it may be a Silverado <laughs> or who knows, but uh, but they're going to break ground on this new plant in, next year in, in early 2020 and start construction and, and get it up and running uh, in the next couple of years. Well, so it all, I'm coming just, I'm stuck a little bit on the, the union stuff where it really seemed like GM was the hardest part of all the other, all the union negotiations this time around. Uh, Ford and FCA both seemed to get through it uh, a little bit easier. So that was just kind of interesting to watch. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lordstown is never going to really sort of return, I, at least from what it seems like, it's, it's not going to be what it was there's going to be you know between this and, and workhorse what maybe a couple thousand jobs overall uh yeah, in probably. that area yeah and and um, you know many many of the people that were that were working in the lordstown assembly plant have since transferred to other gm plants so they've moved away you know and they've gone to work at other other gm plants you know in in ohio and in michigan uh so you know many of them many of them have new jobs already uh, but some of them, you know, that have stuck around Lordstown, you know, may end up, excuse me, getting jobs at this new battery plant. Um, and, and the, this is know, the, the Vega plant, isn't it? Lordstown is for the Vega. Well, the, yeah, the Lordstown assembly plant. So keep, you know, separating the, the, the cell plant from the assembly plant. Right, right. The I'm, assembly I'm plant was where they built the Vega, uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, and it's actually, it's actually a pretty old plant. I think it's, I think it. It was originally built in the 1950s. I can't remember what they built before Vega, uh, but yeah, it was it was the home of the Vega, uh, and then many other vehicles over the years. Finally, ending up with the Cruise. Um, but during the uh, the conference call, during the announcement on Thursday, um, you know, Mary Barra was asked. She's the CEO of GM. She was asked, um, you know, if this plant would be unionized, and her response was interesting. You know, she said, because this is a joint venture plant, this is not a General Motors plant. This is a new company that is 50% owned by GM, 50% owned by LG Chem. It will be up to the employees at the plant if they want to be represented by the union. Norma Ray, get it done. (laughs) (laughs) So it may or may not end up being unionized. I suspect it probably will end up being unionized, but there's no guarantee of that. Um, And, you know, again, you know, they're going with the lower wage tier that that GM typically has for their supplier plants. 
which is about $17 an hour. Um, and I said that, you know, the number of people working there because the cell production is an inherently more automated process, you know, unlike assembling engines or, you know, installing dashboards and seats into cars, you know, this is not something you have humans involved in a whole lot. So even at full capacity, you know, the plant is only expected to employ about 1,100 people as opposed to, you know, up to 5,000 that were working in the Lordstown assembly plant. So with battery assembly too, like and, and batteries themselves, there's a lot of chemistry involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that pose any uh, environmental hazard? Like, what's the risk for those people that are making seventeen dollars an hour to be around, you know, lithium and and all, you know, what I forget, whatever else is in, you know, there's lots of of minerals and just there's there's stuff that can hurt you. And I, yeah, I mean, there's there's always some potential hazard there, but um, you know, because you know the because of the need for, you know, the, the stuff, you know, the main part of what you're talking about there is the coatings that go on the electrodes. And, you know, because that stuff needs to be really pure, this is, this, the, these processes are typically done in, in green room or a clean room environments. Clean, yeah. you know, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, building chips, you know, you don't want any impurities in this stuff. So it's, you know, very highly ventilated and typically, um, when you, you know, when uh, you know, I took a tour a couple of years ago of LG's plant in Holland, Michigan, on the west side of Michigan, you know, when you go into these sections of the plant where they're doing things like coating the electrode material, um, you know, th- these are positive pressure areas of the plant, you know, so, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're not, they don't want to suck anything in. They don't want to suck in any dust or anything. So when you open the doors, you know, you're typically going through like, almost like an airlock. Yeah. Did you have uh, you to booty to, up? We we like had the, to booty up. Uh, yeah. You know, put on the put on the the bunny suits like you do in a chip factory. Yeah. Uh, or or a marijuana sure. production facility. I found well, out. Either one. Yeah. <laughs> um, never been in one of those. So I, yeah, I, I was at first. It was very interesting. It's actually really really high tech in that sense. That they because again they don't want any contamination. So right. And so um, you know, there's not a lot of direct interaction. You know with the, the production process, um, you know, uh, where, you know, where you're talking about these chemicals, um, as far as, you know, kind of the, the broader range of this joint venture, you know, speaking of chemistry, um, you know, GM and LG chem as part of this joint venture are working together on cell development and, you know, cell chemistry development and, and future types of cell, uh, production. So, you know, they'll probably be looking at things like uh, solid state cells eventually and, and areas like that. And also the other thing, um, you know, that Barrow was asked was whether, um, you know, whether this, this plant would be supplying cells to other manufacturers, to other car makers. And she didn't rule that out. She said, you know, it'll depend on, you know, how, you know, um, you know, because, you know, this, this is a business that has to you know, be, you know, op, you know, profitable on it in its own right. Uh, it's a separate business unit. Uh, you know, they will do whatever they need to, to sell as much capacity as they can. And, you know, if we're not using it, they'll be, they'll be free to sell it to anybody else basically. So hey, that's, know, that's, could, that, yeah, that's how it goes for their, their normal stuff. I mean, you've got cars all over the history of uh, automaking that have GM transmissions and HVAC oh, yeah. and stuff in them. So yeah, if they're smart, they'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, you know, 10 years ago when they were developing the first generation Volt, you know, at that time, um, you know, companies like GM, you know, were talking about 
batteries not necessarily being a core competency of the company. You know, it was something that they were relying on their suppliers for. And increasingly that that's that's something that's shifting. Um, you know, as they've shifted as they, as many car makers have started to shift away from internal combustion to electrification, they're increasingly treating both battery, uh, motor design and power electronics as Thing, as areas that they need to have internal core competency in, not necessarily you know manufacturing it all themselves, but you know understanding the the technology and being responsible for the design and development of it. So you know, for example, at the the LA Auto Show, BMW had a workshop on what they're doing uh, with with batteries. You know, they've set up a new battery cell competence center um, in uh, in Munich, and going forward, they are developing the chemistry for all of their cells in-house um, and work, then working with suppliers to actually do the volume production. So they have some small prototype level production capability to build test cells and, and you know, develop those. But then when it comes to actually, you know, producing them in volume for, uh, for, ve- for production vehicles, they'll go out to an LG or Samsung or CATL or, or SK to, to actually uh, manuf- mass manufacture them. Um, Ford also has a similar lab uh, that they that they operate in conjunction with the University of Michigan uh, for the last several years, where they've been doing cell development internally, um, you know, developing the chemistries in in house, and then going out to their suppliers like LG to do the manufacturing for vehicles like the Mach E, and. The, the other area that, um, you know, companies, you know, including Volkswagen and BMW are getting into is the uh, sourcing of the raw materials. They are, you know, BMW and, and Volkswagen have both put in long-term supply contracts for the raw materials so they can ensure that they have a steady supply of the materials needed to build these batteries. Because the raw materials turn out to be about 85 to 90% of the cost of, of the cell. And you know, they, um, they want to make sure that they have a, a steady supply. And, you know, so they've gone out and done the sourcing themselves. And then whoever they select as their manufacturing partner, they'll supply that those raw materials to that manufacturing partner. And, you know, in, in this case with GM and LG, it's a little bit different because they're doing a joint venture, but, you know, still they're getting more directly involved in, you know, this uh, production of this core component of electric vehicles. Yeah, well, that's a smart way to do it. Is to sort of create the spec that you know can be create can be produced in volume, and then have somebody else do the volume manufacturing for you. I mean, that's that's pretty. Seems like that's a pretty uh, well established convention uh, in manufacturing and other spaces. So I, I think that's that's smart of them. Um, yeah, and and this this probably won't be the last battery plant that uh, the GM invests in over the next five to ten years. Well, I mean, they say they're going to have twenty to twenty three uh, cars in the next 20, few years. Yeah, twenty EVs. twenty EVs by twenty twenty three. She uh, Barra did uh, recommit to that uh, that target. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a lot of work to do. Yep. <laughs> that's, uh, um, all right. Let's let's jump to the the next couple of things. You know, there were reports this week, you know, that uh, Mazda, you know, is thinking about uh, electrification for the next generation Miata, uh, which is probably still, you know, the car's probably still about five or six years away from, from production. Um, but, you know, they're, they're looking at what they need to do for that vehicle. And, um, you know, one of the issues with going all electric on the Miata, you know, is, you know, batteries are still heavy and bulky. Um, 
And, you know, the Miata, you know, is known for being small and lightweight, you know, even, even in its modern iterations, you know, it's, it's about the, it's still about the same size, you know, and close to the same weight as the original 1990 Miata that I own. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that's about 2,200 pounds, uh, for a manual transmission Miata. And, you know, it's going to be really hard to get anywhere close to that with an electric version, especially anything with any kind of, uh, reasonable range to it uh it's it's hard to see how they're going to pack in you know enough battery you know to to maintain the you know kind of the the feel of a miata you know especially if you go all electric now hybrid i could definitely see you know that that being a very feasible approach you know doing a, a hybrid uh, miata um or even maybe even a plug-in hybrid you know with maybe a 10 mile electric range i think that's that's very that's very feasible but going all electric you know I'm not sure if that's going to be doable, you know, at least in the next uh, in the next five to ten years. What do you think? I I think that the Miata's character is fundamentally different if you uh, electrify it with current technology. I think that it could still be a lot of fun. Um, hybrid may be a good step to sort of split the difference, but that's a whole lot of investment to make. And if you're in, if you're ultimately going to go EV. I don't. I don't know that that investment is a, a worthwhile investment. You might as well just skip to figuring out the EV uh, immediately. Because if if that's where you want to go, then go there. Um, you know, if if you're going to do hybrid with like like the BMW i, uh, the i3 idea, where you've got it's mostly EV with a little bit of a range extender for for sort of emergency use, that's a little different. But still, that's not really the the Miata's character. So I don't. I mean, it could still be a good time. I mean. Tesla Roadsters were fun. So Oh, they were they were fun, but they were also, you know, hundred thousand dollar cars and they weighed, you know, over three thousand pounds, you know, which is very different from what a Miata is. I think yeah. though, if you if you set your target weight at three thousand pounds, you could make a Miata have a lot of Miata character uh with e, you know, an EV powertrain. And I think you'd still please a lot of people. What what you what I would miss from it is the shifting. <laughs> Yeah. The engine, you know, like those are the things that are just not going to be there, but it'll be a really fun sort of point and squirt kind of uh, good handling small roadster. So, uh, you know, it's going to be like two thirds of the current charm, I think, would be there for it. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I guess part of the part of the issue, you know, the Miata is not a real high volume vehicle. And so, you know, if you're going to make the investment and, you know, go to the effort of doing an electric vehicle, um, it seems like it, you would be better off to do it on something where it's going to have a bigger impact, uh, you know, bigger environmental impact, bigger impact on your, your overall fleet, uh, average, you know, the, the Miata, you know, they don't sell that many of them to justify, you know, that kind of investment in it. They, you know, they would be better off to electrify something like the CX five or, or the CX 30, um, you know, or even the, even the CX nine than to go, you know, and that, and that's basically what they did with the MX 30 that they launched at the Tokyo motor show. You know, it's kind of in that CX 30 to CX five kind of size range, you know, the crossover and, you know, electrified that um, to do it with the Miata. I'm not sure that, you know, it necessarily makes business sense to do it, um, but you never know. But I think, you know, a hybrid could be interesting. Yeah, it it could be. I just like looking at the amount of money that's going to take for a low volume model. I don't know. But there's like the chicken and the egg thing too. Like the Miata 
if you electrify that or hybridize that, you're going to get a lot more attention and a lot more sort of uh, coverage in the media to get your your message out. So there's there's that to think about as well. As as if you just do the CX five, eh? You know, like yeah. uh, it's another EV kind of thing. So Mazda has a lot of considerations to make, and uh, we'll see where they go. Just hedge our bets and be like, time will tell. <laughs> yep, absolutely, as it always does. <laughs> All right, well, let's do this. Let's tee up your interview with uh, Matt Mustefi uh, from Audi, and then we'll come back and we'll answer a couple of questions um, because you got to speak with Matt at the um, the LA Auto Show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so right before we go to this, my I listened to it, and th- one of the things that stuck out to me was that he said 69% of e-tron buyers um, want to buy the e-tron because of the ecological, ecological consideration versus buying an internal combustion car. Um that's still like to me i guess if you're going to be buying a car anyway that's valid but it brings me back to the idea that you can't consume your way to conservation um especially buyers at uh that end of the market you know they're 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 all like um the character vizzini in the princess bride who keeps saying Mm -hmm. like inconceivable (laughs) like keep using that word i do not think it means what you think it means (laughs) (laughs) like if you know conservation were the motivating concern i'd like to see less consumption from the people who can afford it most uh you know buy quality things by all means but then adopt a maintainer mindset uh you know keep it as long as possible so i guess what i'm basically proposing is to completely destroy the economy and uh, you know buy rolls royces and keep them forever (laughs) what could possibly go wrong with that strategy yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) Um, but you know, right. it was it was a really interesting interview. It was about twenty minutes, and uh, when when you're done, when we're done, we'll come back. What about six months into Etron sales now in the U.S. Etron Quattro, um, how how would you say it's going so far at this point? Um, we've had certainly some hiccups along the way uh, to to getting it started, um, but once we got through those, I think we're in a better position now. So obviously we had the recall with the chart port that we had to fix that held up a lot of cars at the port for us um, and a couple other software updates early along the way that we had to do. But now that that's all out of the way, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we should can see, start to see consistent numbers throughout the month of sales. Um, what we saw initially was, you know, I think our peak month was almost 900 units um, and our lowest month was about 470, I believe. So um, quite a wide band there. I think we'll probably fall somewhere in the middle and we have the capacity to support customer demand. So it's really just going to come to uh, how many customers feel they're finally ready to go electric. And if, there's a lot behind that, obviously, yeah. to what will determine when they're ready, but we are here to at least support that and have the capacity to do so. Yeah, the, the, the strategy of designing this vehicle as an Audi first, you know, and, and you know, obviously electric first, but really, you know, an electric vehicle that has the, the characteristics of an Audi, how, how are customers responding to that, and, you know, do you, do you think that could be a challenge in getting some Conquest customers and... Great, great question. So I would say we hit the nail on the head with that. Is it, we designed it to be a normal car, normal Audi first, and um, that's our target buyer for this was really the the wide range of existing traditional ICE SUV buyers, and that's exactly what we're saying with people who are buying e-trons currently. They're coming out of traditional ICE SUVs. So whether it be our Q5 or Q7 and switching to the e-tron or BMW X5, GLE, uh, Lexus RX, things like that, 
those customers are also coming over as well. We're seeing a smaller portion of existing EV customers actually coming to the car. Um, given our direct competitors being Jaguar I-Pace and Model X in that you know premium SUV segment, both of those cars have only been combined on sale for a few years, so perhaps those customers aren't quite ready to make the jump to another new vehicle yet, um, which is why we didn't want to specifically make this car one that targeted only current EV buyers, because the pool is just so small. So I would say it's been a success in terms of conquesting new buyers from not only within the brand for driving ICE vehicles, but also outside the brand. Uh, are, you, are you getting a significant number of conquest buyer, ICE Conquest buyers like from Audi, BMW, or BMW and Mercedes? And so the so split between current Audi owners and um, competitor uh, ICE vehicle owners is almost exactly 50-50. Okay. So we're uh, keeping 50% of e-tron buyers who are coming from the Audi family, but also conquesting 50% from outside of Audi. How are customers responding to the the range of this thing? Yeah, obviously, you know, we can we can talk all we want about 200 miles of range being plenty. You know, and from from a purely rational argument, that's totally true. But as you know, car buyers are not necessarily always rational. Um, you know, and the fact you know it's, it's hard, I would hardly call it a rational choice to buy you know a lot of the high performance cars that we have. So. How are they responding to the, the range of this car? So, um, great question. The number one actual re- rejection reason that we're seeing for customers who don't want to buy the e-tron is the range figure. But then also one of the big things that we're seeing from customers who have purchased the e-tron is that they're saying 204 miles is completely enough for what I need. And if I need to go on a longer trip, I can charge up quickly at the 150 kilowatt EA station. So um, I think it's a matter of getting the customer to experience the car, which is still sometimes somewhat of a struggle. But once they do actually experience it and live with it, they see how much better it is to wake up with a full 204 miles every morning, to never have to go to a gas station, just be able to do everything from the comfort of your own home, and see that that 200 miles is actually really enough for more than what they need. What about what's what's the response been like from dealers? Because you know, in the, in the past, you know, other manufacturers, um, or more, more so from customers uh, of other manufacturers, have complained that dealers have been reluctant to sell them EVs, or you know, they go in wanting to look at an EV, looking at a Leaf or you know any other EV, and the, the salespeople push them towards ICE cars. How's the Audi dealer body been responding to the e-tron? Well, so Jacob had a great point, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, but what we did when we launched the e-tron, prior to launching the e-tron, was we took our dealers through the most extensive training probably they've ever gone through for a new vehicle launch. We took them over to Germany to actually experience the car well before it launched here in the U.S. and do a real, I think it was three or four day crash course of all things e-tron and all things electrification to get them ready to be able to actually talk to customers. Um, and then beyond that, we also have a team here, boots on the ground in the U.S., that takes these cars once they arrive in the U.S. to dealerships, trains the dealers again, you know, refreshes their memory on everything that they learned in Germany, um, and really makes sure that they're ready once the car is there to, to sell it. And some of the data that um, Jacob was mentioning that we've gotten through some research that we've been doing is uh, essentially customer, there's actually a quote that a customer went into the dealership, you know, interested in the Q8 and actually ended up leaving the Q8 which is exactly the story that we want because we see that we position the e-tron as being the electric alternative to the Q8 in terms of size, price, everything, um, packaging. And uh, to hear that a customer actually went in interested in Q8, left with an e-tron is exactly what we want. Is, is, that, is that a common thing that you're seeing or 
we're, yeah. see, we're seeing a lot of people who, for instance, there's that. There are a lot of people who say that they're they look they're looking at high-end premium SUVs. There are people who say that an X5 plug-in is not what they want. They want they want to go all in. And these are people who who've been dabbling with electric and researching it for a couple of years. And now there's a compelling product with the name, the reputation, and the quality that they expect for that kind of price point. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the the things that uh, you know with, with launching this vehicle it coincided with the with rollout of Electrify America. You know, the the first real attempt at you know challenging the supercharger network you know, with with a network that can support all the other EVs out there. Yeah. Um, are you finding that you know when when you talk to consumers, is that something? Is that one of the things that um, maybe brought them to to Audi? As a customer, and you know, the fact that this network exists and and that you know it's, it's supporting what you guys are doing, I think it certainly helps. But I think really the thing that's bringing them to Audi is that we have that established sort of trust and uh, reputation for you know being a car company that you can rely on to build a you know premium quality product. Um, so I would say that's probably what's bringing them in, and then um, just being familiar, obviously, with what our brand is and what we stand for. And then also the Electrify America aspect of it is kind of really just the icing on the cake. And um, I think some of what we're seeing in terms of the rejection reasons is the fact that a lot of these Phase 1 Electrify America stations were built along highway corridors, so people aren't seeing those every day. So their perception of actual uh, charging stations in the wild is much lower than what the reality of it is because they're not seeing them every day. So now with Electrify America's Phase 2, where they're focusing on more metro sites and people are going to see, be seeing stations when they go to the mall or go to the grocery store or wherever, I think that'll help boost then consumer confidence in um, charging networks and then thus get them even more ready to go electric. So. There's, there's a station that opened up in September about a 10-minute walk from my house. So finally opened up. So, I saw the chargers were installed there back in early June. And I was waiting. Yeah, yeah. When are they going to open so, it up? Finally, September it opened. So really, really great story that we have even from the past few months. So in the greater LA area, there were two EA stations open for the longest time. And just clearing by all the red tape and getting them all, all open. Um, within the last two months, we've gone from 2 to 11 in LA. Oh, okay. So total state of California, we're almost at 50 uh, chargers with EA um, throughout the total state. 50 so, locations? Yeah. It's... 50 exactly sites, and then each site has anywhere from four to I think eight chargers at yeah. those sites. Um, and so, then, yeah, by the end of the year, there will be even more. So today's number will double by 2021. Right. Yeah. So it's up way more than double. Way more. <laughs> okay. more than yeah. double. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. You're. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's infrastructure's there. For yeah. There. Yeah, now now I just need an EV to plug it to go plug in and actually try it out. You know, I've got, got a perfect e-tron sport pack for you. I know. Well, <laughs> you can send me one. Yeah. It, it been, uh, let's, let's jump into sport pack. Um, I think, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think in general, uh, you know, in premium utilities, you know, where there's a, a coupe variant of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a premium utility, I think it's general general rule of thumb account for about 15% of sales. Um, for Sportback versus the, the existing Quattro, where do you see that falling? And, and do you see Sportback being uh, more incremental or perhaps cannibalizing some of the, the wagon? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So we do um, like analysis on what we expect the customer to be, what we call a target buyer. 
Um, and what we've seen just based on other cars, ICE cars in that segment, X6, PLE Coupe, things like that, is that they tend to be a little bit younger and a little less oriented with utility. Um, certainly, you'll have some cross shopping between Etron and Etron Sportback, but we expect most of the sales for Etron Sportback to be on top of Etron and not really cannibalize it just because we're seeing those two buyers as completely different people. The Etron Sportback buyer is going to be a little bit younger, is going to be a little less focused on their utility needs and uh, more focused on uh, design and uh, making sure that the car that they have represents you know how they want to use it. And I think that's what the Etron Sportback fulfills really well. Whereas the Etron SUV is really more for that family-oriented person who needs that extra utility and cargo space in the back. Um, and has that family that, you know, they're going to fill that part with. And, you know, the reality is you're actually not losing that much in the sport back anyway. It's about two and a half cubic feet. It's about two and a half cubic feet, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's it's enough, but, yeah. Um, For the the availability is going to be next summer, right? Correct. In in the U.S. Uh, Is it launching in Europe earlier? Just ever so slightly. I think it's uh, mid to late spring in Europe and then about mid-summer here in in the U.S. And mechanically, it's, it's all the same as the existing... Um, each one, right? So there same. are some uh, mechanical changes, uh, improvements that we uh, have planned that we're introducing on the Sportback. Uh, so we are using more of the 95 kilowatt hour battery pack. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's from 88 percent on the Etron SUV now to 91 percent that we're using on the Sportback. But that's in a, a culmination of other software and hardware changes. So now we're um, uh, we've also had some thermal management system changes. Um, terms of how we're using the pumps uh, to be more efficient and also um, improve thermal efficiencies there. And additionally, we've uh, replaced the uh, battery control module um, to be a new piece of hardware that is not only more efficient, but also able to handle that additional usable capacity of the battery. Um, does that battery control module include the power electronics? or Yeah. And um, can you talk at all about what's changing there? Like, are you going to silicon carbide? Uh, I don't have the specific details of that, but I do know that it uh, is more efficient in its power usage, which also helps the range as well. So you're getting efficiencies from that. You're getting more uh, usable capacity out of the battery. And uh, we're also able now to fully disconnect um, the front axle when it's not being used. So there's actually no current going through. Uh, the motor when it's uh, coasting essentially, so that's helping with the efficiency improvements as well. Um, and it's it's yeah those culmination of things. Obviously, the Sportback has a more aerodynamic uh, body style and shape to it, which also helps with the weight. So uh, those culmination things should help uh, boost the Etron Sportback's range. Number. Will those changes get rolled into the wagon as well? At some the point? SUV, you mean? yeah. Um, eventually, it's the plan. Um, yeah, actually, that, 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 now I remember what my uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was that the naming is a little confusing. You, know, you get Etron Quattro, Etron Sportback. Uh, you know, is that going to get kind of rationalized a little bit? So um, the reason why it went from Etron Quattro now it launched as Etron Etron. Okay. The Quattro was dropped before production because it's sort of like think of the original or Quattro how right. it was that was the name of the car and then Quattro became a, a, a basically a variant the designation of the technology a designation. Yeah. So think of this as the or Etron. Okay. And then everything else from there will be a branch of an Etron. Okay. So Etron GT and whatever else. Super Super or Etron. Yes. This is the or Etron. If that's okay. the way how you kind of. Okay. Looking from a technology standpoint um, at uh, you know, 
the, the advantage that Tesla has had over most other manufacturers in terms of range um, or, or you know, overall efficiency, I think uh, a significant chunk of that has come from uh, the fact that they're using silicon carbide power electronics, which gives performance or efficiency advantage. Uh, and I know some suppliers like Bosch have recently announced that they're starting to uh, manufacture silicon carbide uh, for, for power electronics. Uh, so hopefully, um, you know, we'll see Audi and others, you know, start to start to pump that up. Um, what about the, um, the the using more of the battery capacity? Is that something that will be rolled out to the the e-tron? Existing uh, e-tron. Yeah. Uh, so, is it something that could be done, as, perhaps as, a, as an update, as a software update? So or? we're looking into that. Um, the current um, way that it was developed was that all of those pieces were kind of developed together. So because we changed the battery control module okay. and um, all the other changes on the vehicle, that it was all developed together. So we would have to go back and actually test the revalidate and, 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 and verify that you, you're not going to be giving up the durability, which was one With of the reasons the for the previous battery yeah. control module. Exactly. So. Okay. Um, we're confident that it's it's good as it is now. Um, the other aspect that comes into thing is uh, is homologating the car again. If we were to oh, yeah. do such a thing um, and actually put a estimated range improvement behind it, we would have to completely re-homologate the car, which is very expensive. Yeah. Um, so we're I wouldn't say that we're not doing it, but we're looking into it at this point to see how feasible it could be to, to do that. Okay. The, the Q4 e-tron, when is that arriving? Is that coming in 2020? So we showed it at Geneva earlier this year, and I believe we said within two years. Of, okay. um, the concept being shown there in Geneva is when so we'll have Maybe it. more like 21. Yeah, so um, it should be shortly thereafter than the uh, e-tron GT. So okay. e-tron GT will be first, and then the Q4 e-tron will be shortly And the, the GT is coming by the end of next year? Uh, correct. At the so show last night, we yeah. said we should have the, a very sexy... Production lower, sedan wider EV at the show next year. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And um, is that is that still planned to be built on the um, the J1 architecture? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Built in the same plant as the R8. Okay, in uh, Necker's home? Yep. Yes. They'll yep. be built in Necker's home, not, not some house or a life saver or anything like that. So. I think that's, that's pretty much all I've got. Cool. Um, anything else that I haven't asked about that um, we should be thinking about? Market trends. Um, I think that you did, you did hit on like a lot of our buyers are coming from traditional SUV people. Um, there have been folks who, who we've spoken with, just kind of anecdotally, who've said that they've been wanting to go electric for a long, long time, and they just need to figure out what and when made sense to do so. Um, and 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 uh, I'd say along the the the, the wave of, of kind of where these people are, they they may not be like they're they're definitely early adopters. They may not be first movie movers, but they are absolutely a lot of them are, and a lot of them are very early adopters because. We all look at this from a very granular level and kind of on the ground that you see all of these electrified cars. Most of middle America has not seen these cars yet. So it's um, we're still very, very early in the process, and we're still seeing a lot of people who want to come in and be early adopters who want to go electric. On the coast, we see this more as a technology play for why these people are doing this. In the middle of America, it, especially places that don't necessarily have quite the charging infrastructure, these, a lot of people who come into these cars are seeing it as they want to do right by the environment. 
I mean, the people in California fairly do too. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of people. Sixty-nine uh, percent of people who buy e-trons are buying them because because they want to do right by the environment, which is a first for us. Because most of the time it's performance or it's design or it's craftsmanship. But when you have two-thirds of the people coming in and saying, the reason I want this is not only do I want that performance and quality, but I want to be environmentally conscious with what I buy and drive and how I present myself, it's a very different dynamic and a very different thought process. Uh, at least one, one other thing, um, you know, seeing a lot of other um, plug-in hybrids coming into the market as well now you know, from across a number of brands. And, and also enhancements of plug-in hybrids, BMWs extending the electric range of theirs and so on. Um, is, are PHEVs still part of Audi's U.S. strategy? And Check out the Q5 over there. Okay. Yeah, so we have three coming. Um, certainly the BEV portfolio is more of our strategy than the PHEV is, okay. um, but we will have PHEVs to support people who maybe don't feel that they're ready to go full electric yet but still want to be in an Audi and want to do as much electric driving as they feel comfortable with. Um, but yeah, the, the majority of our vehicles moving forward will be full bus, but we will have some more support. Okay. And actually, our, our global CEO recently announced that our target is now 40% of our uh, vehicle sales by 2025 uh, will be electrified. So plug-in hybrids and bus. Globally, we're planning um, by about uh, the same period, 30 electrified models, uh, 20 of which will be all electric. So uh, yeah, they're... It is an ambitious goal, and it will be rapid. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and you know, everybody is moving in this direction now, and it's, it's what, what's going to be interesting to watch is the, the consumer adoption. I mean, it's one thing for everybody to put out all these electrified models. The question is, will customers buy them? But look at, look at Ionity over in Europe, where you have five automakers that are all... Rather than just Electrified America, where it's largely a whole Yeah, they actually invested effort, in the infrastructure directly. Every automaker yeah. over there. And they're all buying into Ion. More and more of them are buying into Ionity every month. Yeah. So uh, I think when you see that kind of support from the automakers and you know that it's not going away anytime soon, it, it becomes much greater consideration. And the charger count in 2025 is just going to be ridiculous anyway. So yeah. there will be no reason not to get an EV at that point. Yeah, well, and, you know, Ford, you know, they're, you know, they're trying to, you know, that's one of the things that part of their strategy with the Mach-E and their other EVs is, is actually aggregating the network. So rather than investing directly in a network, pulling it together to try and reduce that friction for customers. Um, you know, as they as they try to use multiple networks. So Electrify America announced that they're working yeah, on a roaming yeah, as well, so yeah. that'll help bridge that gap as well. So I think yeah. the landscape for charging in 2025 is going to be so different that yeah. uh, I think these targets that we're setting up are realistic. Okay, great. And then uh, when you do have the opportunity at some point to drive plug-in hybrid, yeah. Um, it is a four-cylinder. It is the same engine as the regular two-liter, two, as the regular two-liter yeah. but it performs. It is zero to 60 as fast as an SQ5. It is, and I think that we're breaking down. A lot of people think that a plug-in or a hybrid is supposed to be something easy and slow. Right. But when your plug-in hybrid is as fast as an SQ5. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's a big part of the the strategy shift we're seeing is that manufacturers are seeing, um, you know. The customers don't necessarily want something wheezy and slow. Yeah. You know, they, you know, if they're going to pay this premium price for this electrification, they want they want it to not only give it better efficiency but also enhance the other attributes of the vehicle. 
and you know performance being a, a primary one, but you know in other in other vehicle types and trucks and things it might be different characteristics, but to enhance other attributes besides that and performance is, is on top of that you have a sixty seven hundred dollar rebate on a yeah. on a on a, a Q five plug in so it puts it down at the price of the normal Q five at that point. Yeah. So might as well. Yep. All right. Agreed. Matt had a lot of – it wasn't, wasn't just Matt, too. I don't know who the other voice was. That, that was, that was Jacob Brown. Uh, Jacob is uh, communications manager at Audi. He's responsible for uh, EV communications. And uh, he uh, – Jacob used to be at, uh, at Mazda. That's where I first met him a few years ago. And then uh, he did a stint at Faraday Future um, and uh, left there earlier this summer to go to, uh, to move back to the East Coast uh, to join Audi. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Jacob had a few comments in there as well. I think I follow him on Twitter. Does he listen? If he doesn't, he should. But uh, um, I'm not sure if he does or not. I'll well, have he to, should let us know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll shoot him a note and tell him to listen. All right. And then send Audis. Send all yeah. the Audi EVs because uh, I think that they're, they've got a really solid understanding of, of what their well, customers want. Yeah, well, you know, when he when Jacob was still at Mazda, he's the one that sent me the uh, the Driving Matters license plate frame for my Miata. Oh, that's cool. Um, all right, so let's get, let's jump into email communications since we made it easier for people to email us at uh, who's it? Uh, Sam <laughs> at Wheelbearings. Feedback yeah, at Wheelbearings Right. Well, I I didn't know if it was. Yeah, I was going to go with the the individual ones, but yes, feedback yeah. at Wheelbearings Media. There you go. That, that's that's the main one that you know that gets to everybody, and and then uh, there's individual emails uh, for for myself and Dan and Rebecca as well. But uh, feedback at wheelbearings.media is where we've been getting most of them. And and you know a couple of weeks ago we um, asked you to you know to reach out to us, let let us know where you're listening from, what uh, what kind of stuff you drive, and so we got a a whole bunch of emails, which is really cool. Uh, you know we heard from uh, we heard from a couple of people in Australia actually, uh, including. Uh, Dick Wellam in, in Adelaide, uh, who drives a 2001 um, Miata. And uh, uh, let's see what else. Uh, 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 Rishikesh uh, Mandiam in uh, in London, um, who, strangely enough, also drives a Miata. He's got Wait, a. You a, can drive in nice, London still? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I don't know if he lives in central London or on no, the I outskirts, know. but. Uh, um, yeah, there's still plenty of cars there. Uh, Guy Hesley, um, who, uh, let's see, where is Guy from? He doesn't say. Uh, but, oh, he asked about our opinions um, on the, the fact that the Cybertruck offers the performance of a Model S at half the price or twice the capability of a Model 3 at the same price. It offers um, none of those things because it's not here. It's not reality. And, well, if you believe- and, and, and the thing is, you know, um, you get selective specs. You know, the, uh, like like most manufacturers, you know, Tesla, you know, when they reveal a vehicle like that, they put, um, you know, they, they select which specs to, sh- to show. And the, they're not some of them are mutually exclusive. For example, you're not going to get for thirty nine thousand dollars, you know, the price of a Model 3. You are not going to get 14000 pounds of towing capability or the performance of a Model S. You know, you're not going to get two point nine seconds, zero to 60. It's probably going to be more like, you know. Maybe five or six thousand pounds, which oh, obviously is a lot more right. than more than a Model Three. But you know, you're, it might take five or six they're, seconds. They're to mixing get to and 60. matching, take, taking yeah. you know specs from different trim levels. They're know, not, that, and, yeah, they're not the that only seventy thousand dollar truck that goes zero to sixty in two point nine seconds will probably not tow fourteen thousand pounds. Or if you're towing fourteen thousand pounds, you're not going to have five hundred miles of range. 
You know, those, those things do not go together. You can have one or the other, but not both at the same time. Right. Yeah. And that's that's not us being cranky and disliking Tesla. That's, that's just physics right. and, and business. Um, you, and and that, it, that same thing applies to every manufacturer. Right. You know, I was going to say, though, the, the when Mustang, they launch a new vehicle, they show you the base price, you know, for the Mach-E, they showed $45,000, you know, right. and 300 miles of range. But you don't get 300 miles of range for $45,000. Right. That's exactly where I was going to go was the, the sort of latest EV to make a splash with the yeah. Mustang Mach-E. And they did this. They cherry picked in the same way. And it, it's fine. Like everybody does it. But just understand we're going to call nonsense on it from time to time. That's right, which is – that's what we're here for. Um, and from Greece, uh, we had uh, Apostolos writing in to tell us he drives uh, a 2006 all-wheel drive RAV4 uh, and puts uh, uh, Bridgestone Blizzax on it for the winter, which is great. Um, and, that's, I, uh, drive a, I drive on Blizzax. For, I've done it for decades. They're great. Um, it would be cool to go drive on Blizzax in, in, the, the, in European mountains, though, European mountain terrain. Be yeah, that would be fun. Um, and we heard from uh, John, uh, didn't say where where he's writing from, uh, Rob uh, in Toronto, uh, who, let's see, he uh, drives and flies and rides. Uh, he's got a 2015 Wrangler, uh, 2017 uh, Moto Guzzi V7, uh, a 76 Honda CB400F, and a 1959 Cessna F-150. And in the past, he's had a, a, an RX-8, a, a Mazda Protégé 5, and a 95 Miata. Um, and, uh, interestingly claims the, uh, the 2003 protege five was the best steering car he's owned. Okay. I, I can't get behind that. You know, just, and it just, it's perpetuating that myth that Canadians love Mazdas. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a myth. It's true. No, it's okay. It's just, it's, it's perpetuating it's the stereotype. That's yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, we also heard from, uh, from Khan, uh, in, uh, Houston, Texas. Um, and, uh, uh, between him and his wife, they drive a, a Lexus LX470, an IS350, a Toyota Sienna, a, to, uh, a 94 Supra with a single turbo, and it's a garage queen. Apparently, it's broken again. And a 2004 Honda S2000, uh, which is not being driven enough. Um, let's see who else. Uh, oh, we got uh, Blake in Wisconsin, uh, who uh, drives a, a Nissan 370Z with a manual transmission. And uh, and to to Blake and uh, and Guy, yes, uh, we are the same Sam and Dan from uh, from the Auto Blog days. Um, and uh, uh, Rebecca, uh, who you uh, probably hadn't heard as much of, unless you follow you know the kind of the automotive business. You know, Rebecca, you know, has been an analyst for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, you know, watch a lot of the, the business media, you would have seen her, you know, being interviewed a lot, you know, in places like CNBC and Fox news and, and other places, you know, on, on more automotive business related stories. Uh, you know, that's kind of where her, her background comes from. Uh, and then let's see. And then, um, uh, Adam Jordison wanted to let us know that he's here. And we thank you very oh, that's much. That's right, because we, we did. We asked for hello worlds. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and, and and Sid uh from Austin, um, who uh drive he's got uh two family cars, a twenty thirteen Honda Fit Sport, excellent choice, and a twenty fourteen Honda Odyssey, and previously owned uh Corvettes, uh, Lexus EX uh, ES, um ninety seven Chrysler Sebring convertible. Uh, Wait, somebody election. paid for one of those? That's. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. In terms you might have of, inherited it. That's true. That's true. That's true. Some of us do inherit weird yeah. cars. That's true. Uh, first generation Acura Legend, very nice car. That is an awesome Malibu, car. Seven and a 1978 Chevette. 
Uh, and uh, his the wife, uh, his wife had a '99 Miata when they first got married. Um, so let's get to this this last one here, which is the the big one. Um, this is from uh, from Abby Beckert in Australia, uh, who had some thoughts on the Cybertruck and uh, responding to our our prior discussion of this thing. Uh, it's pretty long, so let me just pick out some of the high points. Um, I think the the fact that you guys didn't fit don't fit the target market for a truck combined with the unconventional design language they've chosen and your general predisposition to dislike Tesla have all conspired to affect your judgment of this product. Okay. Let's start with that. Okay. So I, I'm a middle-aged guy with a family and a house in the suburbs. Um, So in terms of a truck buyer, I am very much in the target market for a truck not exactly as like a contractor or whatever but there's a lot of guys there's a lot of pickups on my street a lot of four-door pickups and you know those mid to higher level trims and stuff so in terms of what we sell in the u.s i certainly am that that target market um and and you as well sam i know that you, you yeah know, have I mean, that, use for a there's truck a too. lot of pickup trucks in my neighborhood um, and you know, both of us drive pickup trucks on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. You know, well, let me, let me just read the, the next paragraph of this too, cause it, it ties into this. First of all, I don't think you understand why people buy pickup trucks. It's not so much about hauling heavy or bulky cargo. Sure. They can do both, but their primary use is for dirty cargo that you don't want in the cabin or boot of a car. Um, and for those of us who speak, uh, the other form of English, that's the trunk, uh, a mountain bike <laughs> after riding through mud, a lawnmower covered in grass clippings, a stinky bag of fertilizer, a bale of hay, power tool covered in sawdust, uh, and, a, or a wet dog covered in sand after an afternoon at the beach. This is, this is all true. Although I would never, ever put my dog in the back of the truck. Like that's right. Like dogs, that. dogs do not belong in the, in the bed of a truck. They belong inside and preferably, you know, buckled up. I've got the, we had the clicket sport for the dog, because if you've got an unrestrained dog and you get in an accident, that dog is now a wrecking ball inside your car and it's, it's going to, to kill the dog and hurt you. Um, but beyond that, like those are all valid uses for a truck. That is, that is all, that is all true, but trucks are also designed for much heavier duty uses. There's no reason why you need in a in a US and North American market pickup which we should touch on um there's no reason why you need four wheel drive massive ride height a V8 engine and uh you know a four door cab and a 6 foot bed to carry a lawnmower <laughs> i yes. can do that i put lawnmowers in the back I can, of I many can put a lawnmower in my West Honda Civic right um but yeah you you had mentioned too when we were discussing this and and Again, I don't want to get defensive. Like, I, I don't think we're we do we're not programmed necessarily to dislike Tesla as a company. There's a lot of people there that work very hard, and they they're trying to design things that are good, and they are pushing the market. Um, I think what our biggest gripe about Tesla is is the the potential that is there, and the horrible horrible management that is is short circuiting really hardworking people and if you had a good management team in place and got rid of the the demagoguery that company could v- really take off and and that that's what frustrates me so much i don't i don't know where you stand on it but uh, yeah totally <laughs> um but north american pickups are different than uh pickups uh in other markets too and especially australia i mean australia you know is is kind of a unique market you know it's it, you know it was the home of the the ute and you know they still even even for more traditional style pickup trucks, you know, they, they still call them utes in Australia, but you know, a lot of the, the market for 
what we think of as pickup trucks in Australia over the years. And I don't know what, you know, what Abby drives, but, um, you know, a lot of that market was for, you know, car-based pickups, um, you know, more, more like, you know, old style El Caminos, uh, you know, both Ford and GM before they got out of the business of building cars in Australia, you know, had, you know, they had the, I can't, uh, the, um, they had utes there, you know, that were based on, you know, the Holden, uh, Commodore and on the Ford Falcon, you know, and that, that was, you know, one of the, the bigger, um, you know, the more popular types of pickups in Australia, but yeah, right. you know, they also the sell, Malou? uh, could be, I think they had it under various badges over the years, but the, you know, there's also a, a fairly substantial market for, you know, compact to midsize pickups, you know, the Toyota, um, Toyota pickups, uh, Ford Rangers, you know, were popular there, you know, and those smaller pickup trucks. And while those midsize trucks are also increasingly popular here in North America, you know, now the Rangers back, you know, the, the, uh, um, the Toyota Tacoma, the Nissan Frontier, uh, you know, the, the real heart of the market here is for the full-size trucks and a substantial proportion of that customer base, you know, yes, a lot of them are sold to, to individuals for personal use, especially the light duties, see the F-150s and the Sierra, uh, you know, uh, Silverado and Sierra 1500s and the Ram 1500s. A lot of them are sold to, to individuals for, for personal use, for towing uh, trailers and, and boats and things like that. But a lot of, you know, more than half of them are also sold to commercial users. And, you know, later on in this letter, um, you know, Abby talks about, you know, commercial, uh, customers, you know, who don't, you know, want to leave their stuff out, you know, in the, in the bed of the truck. Actually, in a lot of cases, um, they, they do have the stuff out in the bed of the truck. You know, you've got landscapers and contractors, you know, and what they will typically have is racks that slide in, you know, to hold all their tools, you know, and they'll have storage units that are, you know, slide right into the bed to hold, hold their equipment and the, the supplies that they're carrying. You know, they're, these pickup trucks are often used by, for example, a local water department, you know, or uh, electric utility crews, you know, that, you know, they, they have, you know, they, they upfit these things with the equipment that they need for their job. And, you know, while, you know, the, the, the cyber truck, you know, did have, you know, they did show off some, uh, some bed rail tie down uh, things in there. You know, these are things that you find in, you know, in all of these trucks. And I think, in, yeah, in fact, I mean, I and, think and very often, you know, much, much more thoughtfully designed for the actual users of the trucks. Right. I spend some time, I think, and, and I think this is maybe where the disconnect is coming from. Like looking at the cyber truck, it's, it's not well thought out for the actual um, for contractors or for uh, those, those sort of, actual heavy duty users of of trucks um he spent some time on like the 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 north american ford website and, and go to their their you know commercial trucks page they had then uh ram as well you can look through the upfitter options there's stuff already on those on those pages and see that there's already that stuff being made you can order it right from the dealership you can finance it it's it's all very well thought out fleet service is a big thing and um those are my concerns. Like if you're going to, to to switch your fleet from a bunch of F-150 XLs to test the Cybertrucks, well, guess what? Your your basic truck now costs a lot more. And if you have a problem with service or you need parts, they're going to be down. So you're going to be down trucks uh, where 
you know, your F-150 XL, if you're making a fleet buy, you can get those for a very good price and they're everywhere. And Ford knows how to get you the parts and you can certainly go to any Ford dealer and get them serviced. So there's a lot of, you know, business side concerns that I don't see. And and that's fine. There may be a market for a couple hundred thousand trucks that are are not the, the big players. And that's fine. I really do want to see an electric pickup come to market. Um, the size of this thing, not good. <laughs> like it does, it just doesn't fit in places. Um, I don't think in, the idea of an exoskeleton is real smart in this end of the market. The thing that that happens with trucks is the bodies get damaged when you're making a work truck. If it's a personal use truck, that's different. And there are a lot of trucks that are used, you know, like like cars, like sedans, uh, you know, that target market that we talked about at the, the top of this, where, you know, we're just the suburban kind of truck user. That's a slightly different story. I think there are a couple hundred thousand people with, you know, enough money who who would buy one of these. And that's that's fine. Design aside, I'm not really concerned about the design. It's not it it doesn't look practical to me. Um but okay. And and everybody rolls out prototypes to to show. So again, like the fact that it doesn't have mirrors or stoplights, you know, DOT compatibility with fine, whatever. But the production truck is going to have to have all those things so they're going to have to think about it at some point um i just it's just not a real it doesn't seem like a a truck that really understood they didn't understand what they were making a truck for other than maybe model s buyers yeah i I agree you know it'll it'll be interesting to see you know once, once it actually comes to production you know what has changed you know to make it more useful as a truck um you know and as well as obviously, as you said, you know, to meet regulatory requirements, uh, I have some real concerns, you know, about uh, you know occupant protection, you know, with that structure that they they claim, you know, the, this really rigid structure. You know, part of the reason why you know modern vehicles are designed to have crumple zones is when the structure of the car crumples in a crash, it's actually absorbing a lot of kinetic energy, kinetic energy that's not getting transferred into the occupants of the vehicle now. If you've got something as rigid as they claim this thing is, then there's nowhere for that energy to go. It's going to get transferred directly through the structure, through the seats, to the the occupants. And so now you have to find a way to provide those occupants with the protection protection so they don't get injured. Um, it's not as simple as just having a really rigid structure. There's a lot more. It's a much more complex issue. Um, and, you know, just some of the practical matters like visibility, you know, I think I think visibility yeah. is going to be a real issue out of this thing. But yeah, it's not the 50s. Like cars that crumple, like that's not a bad thing. The whole that argument, and I still hear it like, oh, you can't hit anything with these cars. They just come apart. It's yeah. And then you open the door. It's that the way door, for a reason. The door opens and then you walk away with your intact limbs. Yeah. <laughs> Without your maybe, head maybe having a few bruises or scratches, but you're not, you're not dead. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and we've seen cars with rigid exoskeletons, right? Like the, um, the, what's the very small Renault, uh, or even the smart car, right? They, because they were so small, they had the twin rigid, yeah. Um, rigid structure. And what they would do was they would consume some of the crash structure of whatever they hit, uh, you know, and, and they would sort of be relying on you to hit something larger. Yeah, or, or, you know, they would... Yeah, you know, um, what would often happen if you you can find videos online, uh, for example, of a of a uh, smart car crashing being crashed into a Mercedes E Class, 
Right. And what you often see in that case, because the smart was so light, um, you know, you had this rigid structure because there was no physical space for, for a crash, uh, for a crush zone rather than crushing that, uh, energy would be dissipated by the car, literally bouncing off the other vehicle. Yeah. So and then you so have a you bunch of secondary it, impacts. Uh, yeah. Which could, you know, it's problematic, but you know, uh, yeah. either way, like there's, there's only, you know, so many paths for that energy to go. And I'd rather have it go through the structure of a vehicle than through my body. Quite yeah. <laughs> but so this, I, this is a topic know. that we'll be discussing for probably at least the next three years. Yeah. Um, so we'll, I, uh, we'll come back to it. Yeah. I, I don't, I, but I really like, we're not predisposed to dislike Tesla where, but we're going to call nonsense when there's nonsense. And this cyber truck rollout thing has been nonsense. It's been brilliant at, at getting, uh, you know, coverage in the media for Tesla. And it's been making all of these people who aren't very thoughtful about the auto industry and the, the, the you know, the car and truck market to say that, you know, oh, this, this puts the nail in the coffin of the, you know, of Ford and GM. And I think that's complete nonsense. And really, we should thoughtfully look at it. And and it's not because it's styled weird. I'm That's fine. I'm fine with weird styling. But, uh, it, you know, it's it's just it, it didn't seem like a very well thought out effort. And, and so that's what has bugged me uh, about the Cybertruck. And I think the Rivian stuff is actually much better thought out and at the, at the end of at the end of the day too like these are not binary choices we don't need to choose between you know us one or two very expensive high-end electric trucks like there's other ways around this stuff um that don't involve vehicles at all or involve other modes of transportation that we should probably be looking at so like renting a truck when you need one yeah yeah it's there are no easy solutions it's just sort of like you know Let's, my, let's look at it. My philosophy has always been that a truck is a great thing to be able to borrow. Absolutely. That's why every time I get a truck as a median, I'm like, all right, where do I need to go? What do I need yeah. to take to the dump? Right? That kind of stuff. So, all right. Um, well, let's let's, right, we'll let's wind it up. Uh, and uh, thanks to everybody for writing in and, and keep those emails coming that uh, feedback at wheelbearings.media. Um, and uh, we will keep trying to address them every week. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye.